From McMinnville, Oregon, this is Crisscrossing Science, the podcast that is made of fermions but communicates with bosons. I'm Michael Crosser. Of course, you know Chad Tilburg. And today's title is Bose-Einstein Condensation. Hey, Chad. Hey, Mike. Let's get dense. (laughs) (laughs) So we're a little slap happy today because we're both in our new digs in the new science center at Linfield University. Yeah, I'm over here in my research lab. You're over in your office. And I'm in my office. And if I'm we sure... opened the right doors, we could probably see each other. It's possible. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about today? Well, we, we recently had visits from some Nobel laureates, mm-hmm. if you remember. Yep. And remember. we had some great discussions with them. And actually, with Bill Phillips, at some point, we asked him a question about something called a boson. And he went on this incredible off-the-cuff lecture telling us some of the statistics of it. And we didn't have room in that episode to actually include it. And so mm-hmm. I asked him when he was here if I could use some of that today for our recording here. And so uh-huh. we're actually going to do that. So that that was actually sort of the inspiration of today's episode, because a lot of the work that he did was to cool down atoms, get them really, really cold. And it turns out if you get them cold enough, then certain atoms can turn into something called a Bose-Einstein condensate hmm. and have unique properties. And I remember actually when this was experimentally done. So okay. this is fairly new stuff, but getting some of the intuition behind it is going to, we'll have to build up some thinking before we get to all that stuff. Okay. So what, what's my frame of reference? What should I start thinking about here? Well, a big change in physics around the turn of last century was combining this idea of thermal physics, which is all talking about like how engines work and how gases expand and pressure is formed and temperature affects different things. And thinking about what happens at the atomic level to make that the case. Hmm. And so that's something that we call statistical physics. And that was a revolutionary way to think about thermal properties and how a bunch of individual particles could come together to create this macroscopic behavior that we can easily see in the lab. Okay, I see. So anyway, just for interesting reasons, that was a big deal. And then for historical reasons, that was also a big deal because then people started asking the question, well, okay, what about these other things that we notice? Do those also, can we describe those also as a bunch of individual particles acting in a certain way? And asking that question led to quantum mechanics and all sorts of other things that no one expected to fall into that rabbit hole. So what era are we talking about here? What What's our time frame? Well, this prediction for the Bose-Einstein condensation actually was in, I think, 1927. Mm. And the experimental wasn't until 1980s, 1990s, like okay. 60, 70 years later. And we'll talk about how there were some thoughts before that time of like, well, Maybe some of this other stuff that we see are the Bose-Einstein condensates as well. But nobody believed it at the time. And then afterwards, we're like, okay, yeah, that is there as well. We'll get into all that later on. Okay. But so basically, two people, a guy named Maxwell and a guy named Boltzmann, came up with a lot of statistics for all the thermal properties of things. And they did it by thinking about like, okay, so I have a thousand particles, a million particles, whatever. And I give them all a certain amount of energy to share amongst them. Mm-hmm. How are they going to behave? You know, how many of them are going to be at this excited state? How many of them will be at a different state and so forth? And, and it, it works very well. And in fact, the statistics are named after Boltzmann. We call it Boltzmann statistics. And one example that I would just bring up is condensation specifically, since that's part of the title today. Okay. So you're probably less familiar with the word condensation. You're probably more familiar with evaporation, I would guess. Okay. Yeah. Is condensation sort of the opposite of evaporation? That's right. Yeah. So evaporation is just when a liquid turns into a gas. And then if a gas is turned back into a liquid, Mm -hmm. that's called condensation. Okay. So this 
is the stuff that sort of accumulates on the outside of my glass when I have like a cold beverage in it. Yes. Now, it's interesting to think about this using the atomic level of stuff. To evaporate something, basically, all these molecules or whatever are slightly attracted to each other, right? And so they're kind of, they want to be near each other. By the way, I'm just going to do it. Bill, when we get to him later on today, he also says that they want to do this. And so I'm going to personify all day today. Okay. So all these particles, they want to do the things that they're going to do. Okay. They have hopes and dreams, you're saying. (laughs) They have hopes and dreams of being in the same state. But if you think of a liquid, how do they actually evaporate? Well, they're bouncing around. They're hitting each other all the time. And every once in a while, one of these will maybe get bopped by like multiple molecules at the same time and get some extra kick of energy or something like that. And they'll have the energy to just leave. So hang on a second. So when you're talking about Boltzmann and these statistics, Mm -hmm. is that a way of kind of describing the average momentum of different particles and sort of like a distribution of some of them are moving faster than and some of them are moving slower than that. And so what you're saying is that sort of on one of the upper tails of that distribution are going to be a subset of molecules that are moving fast enough that they actually up and leave the liquid state. Right. And so when you're thinking like that, then it's actually interesting. Why do we sweat? We sweat so that we can evaporate water. And when that evaporates, that actually cools us down. And so Mm -hmm. it makes sense if you've got this distribution of some liquid and we're taking away all the high energy ones, everything else will redistribute and still make that curve that you're describing. Mm -hmm. But now they have to redistribute all the energies to. And so the average energy is going to be lower than what it was if we kept the higher energy ones around. Okay. And so evaporation cools things down, which is kind of nice. Well, it's also interesting, though, to think about condensation. If we have a gas that we want to turn into a liquid, it has to get rid of that energy somehow. And maybe it does that by running into a fluid and bumping around those atoms and getting rid of some of its extra energy by distributing it around those other atoms, right? I mean, that's certainly one way. But overall, that will raise the temperature of your fluid, you would think. But the thing about statistical physics is that you can use the behavior of individual atoms, individual particles, to say how would they behave in any of these individual interactions and use that to expand out the large macroscopic behaviors that we observe in the lab. It turns out, if we're talking about like large numbers of particles and high temperature, Boltzmann statistics works very well. Okay. But it turns out then that once people started doing this thinking through with other particles of like smaller and smaller things that statistics turned kind of weird and your predictions of how things would behave actually deviated in two different directions. Hmm. And so it turns out there are two types of particles in the universe when we're talking about the statistics of it. We have these things called fermions and Mm -hmm. things called bosons. Okay. Fermions are what they're electrons, they're protons, they're neutrons. Uh, There's a bunch of other ons. I use Um, those a lot. I cook with them. Yeah. But you know, you're probably familiar, for instance, like in chemistry, they talk about electron shells mm-hmm. a lot. That fermions can only have one particle in a given energy state at a time. Says who? A guy named Polly. He made this exclusion principle. Okay. Um, but for whatever reason, that's what they choose to do, Chad. <laughs> Okay, yes. And so electrons form these energy shells in which you've got some in the ground shell, but then you have these other energy states that they're forced to be in. And so you have all these different shells that they can't all just be in ground state. Mm -hmm. Once you've filled up the ground state, you have to go to the next energy level and then go to the next one. The way I feel like I learned about this is you've got the ground state and that's kind of closest into the nucleus. Mm -hmm. And generally, if we're talking about, say, a metal or something like that, we're only talking about the outermost electron at all. All the other electrons have 
have a much lower energy. Mm. And that top electron doesn't want to have that much energy. It's just, it's stuck up there, you know, and so it, it has to do all this work. <laughs> and so with these different shells, then if you think about, for instance, like the periodic table, once you have a certain number of, of electrons around, then they they fill up the shells, right? And so then mm-hmm. you have the noble gases, for instance, the helium, the the argon, the neon, neon and so forth. Similarly, if you go down into the nucleus itself, neutrons and protons are also fermions, which means they also have energy levels and they have to stack up similarly to that. Okay. And we don't call those shells in that case. We just say that they have magic numbers. And so there are certain combinations. No, you don't. You really say they have magic numbers? Yeah, that's the term. Physicists use the term magic numbers. Yes. Google it. All right. Well, so for instance, like four is one of the magic numbers that helium four is very, very stable Okay. as far as like the nucleus is. And in fact, I believe 120 is supposed to be a very stable number as well. Mm. Back several years ago, people were talking like, yeah, if we could create that, I bet that would be more stable than relative to the other things that are that heavy. It would probably be more. Anyway, I see. So it's relative. All right. Those are called fermions. The other type of state is called a boson. And so whereas fermions can only occupy one particle in a given energy state. For a boson, they can all be in the same state. Now, some examples, I'll just bring up two right now. We'll talk about more examples later on. But photons, they are bosons. Okay. And so like a laser is a perfect example of photons acting as bosons, that they all form the same state and are able to work coherently and together to create this very powerful light source, which is very different from like just light from a light bulb. So is a difference between fermions and bosons that one has mass and the other doesn't? That is tempting to think that, but you can actually have atoms be bosons as well. Oh, huh. But we'll get to that. Okay. But not only that, they actually want to occupy the same state. Now, this is very counterintuitive. And so when Bill was on our podcast before, he answered a question about bosons and gave this little thing. So let's take a listen to that. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about the Bose-Einstein condensation? Yeah, this is something that's really cool. So around the early 1920s, there was this Indian physicist named Natendra Bose, and he had what had to be a really crazy idea. He said, look, photons are indistinguishable. That is, I can't tell one photon from another. And this means that the way I do what we call statistical mechanics with photons is completely different from the way that people like Maxwell and Boltzmann in the 19th century taught us to do statistical mechanics. Now, what is statistical mechanics? Look, we know the gases are these collections of atoms moving around at random. And one of the ways we can understand what the properties of a gas of atoms is, is by asking ourselves, how many different ways can a collection of a certain number of atoms that has a certain amount of energy, how many different ways can it do that? And the more ways there are that it can do a certain thing, the more likely it is that it's going to behave like that. So in other words, let's say that I've got a box and I got 10 atoms in it. And let's say I want to know how many atoms are on the left side of the box and how many atoms are on the right side of the box. Well, so I want to have five atoms on the left and five atoms on the right. Well, let's say all the atoms are different. There's a whole lot of ways in which I could have five atoms out of the 10 on one side of the box, the other five atoms out of 10 on the other. I mean, let's say that they've got, uh, that they're numbered one through 10. Well, I could have one, two, five, and seven and eight, nine and 10 on the, you know, the whole bunch of different ways. Now, Mm -hmm. how many ways could I have all 10 atoms on, on the side? Not very many ways, just one. 
So it's far more likely that I'm going to have five atoms on each side than that I'm going to have all 10 atoms on one side. And that may be obvious that, you know, if you've got a gas of atoms, it's not very likely they're all going to be on one side, right? Mm -hmm. Well, with statistical mechanics, this way of counting up how many different ways you can do something is a very clear and mathematical and accurate way of quantifying that general feeling, which is correct, that they're not likely to all be on one side. Now, I told you this thing about the atoms imagining that they were numbered. That meant they had to be distinguishable for this to be true. Well, the atoms are going to be distinguishable anyway, because they all got different velocities and stuff like that. But what if they didn't? What if they were really cold? Mm -hmm. uh, what Bose did was he thought about this with photons. Well, let, let me make, make a simple analogy. Let's say we just had two boxes and two photons. How many ways can I put two photons into two boxes? Well, you could put both of them in the left one, both of them in the right one, one of them in the right, one of them in the left, and the other way around. Mm -hmm. But what if the photons are indistinguishable? Mm. That means one on one and one on the other, that's the only thing because switching them around doesn't change anything because it, it can't tell them apart. So the way you would count if they were distinguishable, you'd say there's four different ways I can put two photons into two boxes and two of them have two photons in the same box, half of the different states. So that's going to tell you what the probability of having the two photons together. But if they're indistinguishable, then two out of the three possible ways are going to have two photons in the same box. So in other words, it's far more likely when they're indistinguishable that those things are going to go into the same box. Now, photons follow this kind of rule, and we call them bosons after Satendra Bose. And we say that they follow Bose statistics after Satendra Bose. Sometimes we say Bose-Einstein statistics because Einstein took the idea of Bose and extended it. Okay. But this basic idea that I've tried to get to is that bosons like to be together just for this purely idea of the way we count how many ways you can do things. It doesn't have anything to do with the fact that they attract each other. It just has to do with the fact that when you count up how many ways you can do things, that it turns out that it's more likely that the bosons are together. And this is what's behind Bose-Einstein compensation. The atoms want to be together. They all want to be in the same state. And that state is the lowest energy state, which is the one where they're not moving. So that's what Einstein figured out. What Bose did was something remarkable. He figured out what the spectrum, that is what the distribution of energies was of photons in a hot object that radiates light. It had been figured out 20 some years ago by a guy named Max Planck. And it was a really complicated argument. Bose was able to make the argument just really simple by making this assumption about the way you count up the states. Hmm. So the story is that Bose writes up the paper, he uh, he submits it to a journal and they reject it as being totally crazy. Because it was totally crazy, but it was right. <laughs> <laughs> So he writes to Einstein. He says, I wrote this paper and they won't publish it. What do you think? Einstein read the paper and he said, this guy's on to something and submits it to a German journal in Bose's name saying, I think this paper ought to be published. And because he's Einstein, it gets published. Huh. And now Einstein thinks, okay, what if we think about atoms instead of photons? And then he comes up with this idea because atoms and photons are different. Atoms don't go away. Photons do. Photons aren't conserved, but atoms are. And so he thought, what happens then? And he comes up with Bose-Einstein condensation. Bose, because it's Bose statistics, and Einstein, because he was the one who did the calculation. And he sends his paper to some of his buddies, people like Schrodinger and Heisenberg, you know? 
And they write back and they say, wait a minute, you've made a mistake. You're not counting right. And he says, that's the whole idea. Mm. <laughs> you count the same way that we've been taught to before. Interesting. Okay. And that only works because either the photons, if we're talking about Bose's work or the atoms themselves, if we're talking about Einstein's broader application are indistinguishable from each other. That's exactly right. But it's more than that, that they're of a certain kind. I sort of glossed over that. And that kind is what we call bosons, things that follow that kind of statistics. There's okay. another kind of thing in the universe. Those things are called fermions. They follow a different kind of statistics. And their statistics are that they're not allowed to be in the same place. So this idea of putting two you know, marbles in the same box, you're forbidden to do that in Fermi statistics. Mm. And electrons are fermions, whereas photons are bosons and so are sodium atoms. And what that means is I can make lasers out of photons because all the photons are the same color and going in the same direction. So they're all, you know, in the same state. They love to be in the same state. That's what makes a laser. And electrons are fermions. And if they weren't, we wouldn't be talking about it because we couldn't have any chemistry because all atoms would look like hydrogen because they'd all be in the same state. But they're not allowed to do that. And so we have the whole periodic chart of different kinds of, uh, of atoms that have different kinds of chemistry so we can exist. And there's only two kinds of stuff in the universe as far as we know, bosons and fermions. Huh. And you Excellent. can talk out because it's all crap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that, that was good. I think I picked up on that. So that was, that was a good explanation. I don't know how to make you listen to it to refresh your memory, but, but this basically- is good. We should leave this in. <laughs> But basically, Bill was talking about how I've got, uh, let's say, two energy states and two particles. And if I know what they are, a red ball and a blue ball, let's say, then I could say, well, both are in this one side or both are over here. Or I could have a red, blue and a blue and a red. Mm -hmm. But if I can't tell them apart, then I only have three possible states. I've got them both over here, both over there, or one in one and one in the other. Okay. Now, that, that seems like that's just stupid counting. It feels like the probability should still be double the chances of having them be in different things. And that's actually why Bose's paper was initially rejected, because it's very counterintuitive, the statistics behind it and the math behind it. Hmm. But it turns out that, especially if we were talking about a more physical system, where you have a lower energy state, that... They will tend to want to all be in the ground state rather than be in an excited energy level. And so what will happen is if we're able to allow them to reach the same energy levels, then they will actually form sort of a super atom or a super structure where they're all working coherently together. And so I mentioned a little bit ago that photons, if you can put them in a laser, they're all going to be in the exact same energy state. And then they're all working together as one coherent light source rather than just a bunch of photons that are just kind of coming at your eyeball. Okay. And so when you say that they're all at the same energy state, are you saying, should I be thinking of this in terms of frequency or or what? Well, if we're talking about atoms, I would think of them as they'd all be in ground state, meaning that they're not moving, basically. Okay. So they would all want to, like if I if I could get them cold enough that they would all prefer to just hang out and do nothing together. Okay. Bosons are sort of like my friends from high school, really. <laughs> So, I mean, should I be thinking of these? Are these atoms that are aggregated together and suspended in space or? Well, so the experiments that we'll be talking about later on, they were suspended in a magnetic trap. Right. So they were forced together. But basically, the reason that they have this term of a condensation is because they do the same thing as we were talking about with a gas to a liquid, is that they will tend to congregate into this lower energy state. Hmm. And okay. one detail here is that in order to get it cold enough, they were 
releasing the very energetic particles anyway, they were letting those escape. And so you can kind of think of it like, okay, well, if I have a bunch of gas particles and they could be in energy state zero, one or two, if they're all at state one, then, you know, that's fine. But if one of them is able to take an extra energy away from another, then it would jump up to two, go away, and then the other would jump down to zero. So they mm -hmm. would tend to congregate in the zero state more often than not. So what you just described would result in the overall average energy of the remaining ones going down. Right. And then if you sort of continuously, every time a couple collide just right so that some surplus momentum gets transferred to one of them and then that one escapes, Right. then what's left behind is a still less energetic set of atoms. Yeah. Okay. But in this case, like you're at the bottom part. You can't get any lower than zero. Okay. <laughs> so okay. They're, they're just then all hanging out doing absolutely nothing. So they prefer to be in the same energy state, but it turns out the normal statistics would apply. Like if I'm at room temperature, all the atoms are going to be excited to whatever energy that they are, and they're going to be moving on average at some speed or something like that. And we can calculate all that sort of thing. But we can only see this like cool effect if they're all appreciably in the very low energy state. And so the only way to actually do this, you have to get them very, very cold. Mm -hmm. If we can do that with enough atoms, we can get them cold enough, then they will condense into the state and be sort of a super atom acting okay. all coherently. So the people who actually did this research had to rely on the work of Phillips okay. and Wineland, our previous guests, because they needed to cool them down initially to, to get them down anywhere near the temperatures that they needed. Mm -hmm. And then they allowed what they called evaporative cooling to happen, which is they let the more energetic atoms escape, taking all that extra energy away with them so that the, the ones that were left were really cold enough. And then those all condensed down into this one state. Mm, okay. And so the people who, who first did it were a guy named Carl Wyman and Eric Cornell. They used rubidium atoms and got them cold enough to form a condensate. Hmm. And then like four months later, then Wolfgang Ketterle used sodium and did the same thing. Now, Ketterle actually did something very cool was that he had two different reservoirs of these condensate of sodium and he allowed them to expand out and run into each other and when that did then he was able to image them and see that they were actually interfering with each other he saw these interference patterns of them that mm -hmm. like there were some places where there were a lot more of the atoms and some places where there were a lot fewer atoms and so he was able to show that somehow just like with lasers they they kind of formed together and could work together and, and do mm -hmm. interference stuff and so is this getting at the idea of particles behaving like bosons or something yeah and so so in order to do that, we needed particles that could behave as bosons. Huh. Yeah. So you seem comfortable with the idea that protons, neutrons, electrons, they're all fermions uh -huh. and light. So what's okay. distinguishing between them? Well, the big difference is that electrons and protons and neutrons all have something called a magnetic moment. Have mm. you ever heard of this term? Yeah, but I, I'm pretty fuzzy anymore on what the details of that would be. Well, basically, all of those particles have inherently to the particle, there is a magnetic moment inherent to it. So like a north and a south pole or something? Correct. So all of those particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons, mm -hmm. is that what you're saying? Yep. Our computers now actually use the fact that electrons have this built-in magnetic moment. Okay. You've probably also heard of, like, you can go to the hospital and get an MRI. Uh-huh. That stands for nuclear magnetic resonance imaging. And so is that making use, so nuclear magnetic resonance, is that the part that we're talking about here? Yeah. So the nucleus itself has the protons and the neutrons. They have magnetic moments built in. Okay. And so with that technique, what you're doing is you're sending a magnetic pulse, getting them to kind of spin around and then... 
you send a second pulse to measure how fast they went in their spinning and so forth. We won't get into the details of any of that. But again, that technique, the MRI is utilizing the fact that protons and neutrons have a magnetic moment built in. Okay. Now, protons, phonons, things like that have zero magnetic moments. But it turns out that you can also have a boson by having magnetic moments cancel out. Uh, so for instance, if I had helium-4, so helium-4 is the particular isotope of helium. It has yeah. two protons, two neutrons, and therefore there are two electrons orbiting around. So let's talk about the electrons in that shell. They're both in the same shell. And so it turns out that one of them has its spin, say, pointing up. Then the other one has to have its spin pointing down. Okay. And so those two magnets are canceling each other out. And so then effectively you have no magnetic moment when you mm. look at the entire atom as the system itself. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. And so it is possible to have them just cancel out and then that acts as a boson as well. Mm. So as long as you have an, a total even number of all these fermions together, it is possible for it to act like a boson. Okay. But what is interesting is so, for instance, another isotope of helium is helium-3. Uh-huh. And so helium-3 has two protons because it's helium, but it only has one neutron. Yeah. And so we have an odd number there. We have an extra spin. So helium-3 always acts like a fermion, but helium-4, if you get down to a low enough temperature, actually acts like a boson. I see. And so helium-3, no matter how cold you get it, simply cannot do that? Well, and, and let's actually talk about that. So okay. when things are acting as a boson and they form a condensate, they all act as one giant system together. So are you suggesting that all the nuclei get together? No. Okay. So they're all still individual helium-4 atoms, mm -hmm. but it's not a super atom in the sense that there's a single nucleus with just like a whole bunch of protons and neutrons. No, but it's a super atom in the sense that if they start flowing this way, they're all working together. And if they go this way, they're all okay. moving together and operating together. Okay. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to say basically their wave functions overlap to the extent that they're all one single large wave function, but nobody wants to say that. <laughs> but you get like really interesting properties when that happens uh-huh so like helium-4 for instance if you get it down really really cold actually behaves as something called a super fluid mm. so normally you've got resistance when if you try to pour a fluid you know okay. maybe like if you're sitting in your car and watching the rain hitting your windshield they'll just form these little droplets on your windshield and then at some point maybe Enough of them will coagulate together enough that they'll just kind of start dribbling down. And then all the rain nearby will try to follow that same path down. Uh -huh. You sort of broke the seal there, right? Right. That's because there's resistance on the windshield that they can't all just flow down just wherever they are. Right. But it turns out if you have a superfluid, there's no resistance. And they'll just huh. flow wherever. Hmm. My graduate advisor actually dealt with this quite a bit unintentionally because we did low temperature physics and we actually used helium to get things really, really cold. He had a small crack in his fridge and it turns out that it was such a small crack that they couldn't find it at room temperature. <laughs> but when it got down cold enough and the helium was turning into a superfluid, then it would all escape. It would just all flow out this small crack because it had no resistance. So, huh. so what can you do? I mean, aside from finding really small cracks what can you do with something that's behaving as a superfluid i'm not sure i okay. i just know that's one of the consequences I mean, I mean just it seems like i don't know something that moves without resistance seems like it ought to have some pretty cool applications yeah but mm. i don't know a lot of experiments in that field yeah okay i do know more experiments in another example of this yes which is superconductors ah so okay. in a superconductor electrons actually will join together and so if you have two electrons they actually form something called a cooper pair and together they will work to go through a metal with zero resistance 
So I feel like we've talked about this at some point in the past as well. So like all the electrons, as you say, are sort of working all together. Is, is this just one sort of big schmear of electrons? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because they're working together, they're not going to scatter. My cartoon of this would be like, okay, I've got one electron is trying to scatter off of something, but it's paired up with a second electron. So that second one is they're sort of playing like Red Rover, Red Rover. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're clotheslining everybody or whatever that game is. I don't totally remember. <laughs> but yeah, so basically you can have these electrons work together and they can travel through with no resistance. And there's a lot of examples of that. Even to do the MRI stuff, they need superconductors in order to create the magnetic fields that are strong enough for what they need them for. Hmm. You know, if you did it with a normal metal, then without the superconductivity, then you're just dumping heat everywhere. I see. And that's no good. But with a superconductor, you're not creating any extra heat. And is the heat that accumulates in just a normal metal, where is that heat coming from specifically? Remember, uh-huh. temperature is just the random motion of atoms. Uh-huh. And so if I hit a nucleus with my electron, I just kind of nudge it just a little bit. Okay. If I'm doing this, if I'm putting on you know several amps through a wire, that means I'm sending 10 to the 20 electrons every single second uh-huh. through that wire. So there's uh-huh. lots of opportunities that you're you're going to hit a nucleus. Okay. Even though just one electron is going to barely nudge it and you won't really notice it too much. If but you're putting in 10 to the 20 billions of, things, billions right, of billions, then now all the atoms are wiggling around and getting okay. Really excited. Okay. Now switch back and tell me again about superconductivity and how that flows without that property of the electrons nudging the atoms. So what's happening in that case is that, and this doesn't happen for every metal, this only happens okay. in certain metals, but in the metals that have it, they allow the electrons to actually work together. And so basically, one way you can think about it is that as one electron is trying to go through, maybe the nuclei are all slightly attracted to it. But then by nudging them over a little bit, then the second electron is able to pass through, like it helps pull that second electron through. Hmm. And then maybe they're working together to make sure that they're each passing through that just fine. And so there's sort of this coherence and working together again happening, which is what Bose-Einstein constants do. Okay. And then one final example would be a lot of people are working on these in the gas forms, little puddles of atoms that they put into an array of some sort, and they're using them to try to create quantum computers, which hmm. keeps popping up in a lot of our discussions. Yeah. So long story short, there are things called fermions and things called bosons. Uh-huh. And it turns out with bosons, if you can lower the temperature, if you can lower the energy in the system, they will cooperate with each other. Okay. And by having them all cooperate together, then there's a lot of really interesting things that you can have them do. And it's that set of cooperating very, very cold bosons that is the Bose-Einstein condensate Mm -hmm. that itself is the condensate. Yeah. Cool. So what's turned out when Weinman, Carl Weinman, first discovered Bose-Einstein condensation experimentally, everyone was like, well, that's really cool. That shows that Bose and Einstein were correct, that they predicted this correctly. That's cool. You know, whatever. But it turns out that since that time, we've found more and more uses of this idea. And Hmm. having sort of macroscopic amounts of atoms working together, it turns out there's a whole lot of applications for those. Hmm. And people keep finding more and more ways to make them. So Okay. Thanks, Mike. (laughs) <laughs> normally you you're more excited in your thanking but well I'll take it <laughs> no, this is a hard one it's just 
So I'm trying to get my head around like some sort of cartoon model of why they start to behave as some sort of cooperating or behaving in a coherent manner set of entities. Kind of like the why behind it. Well, let's do the opposite of that. So if we okay. have something that has more energy, then that means there's a lot of more energy states for things to occupy. Okay. Meaning that they're all doing different things, right? Like okay. one energy state could be like, oh, well, I'm rotating like this. And another energy state could be like, oh, well, I'm just flying really fast this way. I think I see where this is going. Okay. But if we take all those energy states away and they're all condensed down to the same thing, they're all behaving the same way. They don't have unique, uh, they can't act in unique ways. I see. I feel I feel like I felt another couple little pieces fall into place there. All right. <laughs> I'll take that as a win. <laughs> I will well, do thanks, Mike. <laughs> thanks, <laughs> <All right>. Mike. <laughs> this episode was recorded on the beautiful campus of Linfield University. Rudy Ortega wrote our theme music. If you like this episode or others like it, you should subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll download the latest episode as soon as it becomes available. While there, leave a comment and a rating, and that'll help other people find our podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, or if you have questions that you would like us to address, email us at crisscrossingsided2mail.com. All one word, all lowercase. Or hit us up on Facebook. Until next time. Thanks for listening.